We are talking today, though, about BC's vaccination plan. For our seniors, we'll be starting uh, the, the vaccination clinics starting March 15th will be available for them to come into. And many of them, you know, some of them will be in community centres, um, some of them in, uh, you know, uh, different community places where we routinely use uh, for vaccinating that those groups for the flu. Um, but when we get into March, uh, starting March 12th, we will have, lar- sorry, April, I'm sorry, when we get into April, starting for the for the broader population, 75 and up and under, um, we will have mass clinics that are being basically set up, locked down uh, as we speak across the province. Some of them will be very large, larger than you know anybody has probably ever experienced in Canada, and others in small communities. Small communities, you know, will probably use the traditional settings they they have all along because we can, if we're there for a week, we can manage to get people vaccinated through that time frame. So we will be coming back to just basically talk about all these various components of this, uh, you know, a little later on in March. That was Dr. Penny Ballam speaking at that news conference just a few moments ago. Let's bring in Mike Waddingham, spokesperson for the group Ready for My Shot. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me today. I know a lot of information just released. Some of it we knew about before. Some of it is new information. What is your response so far to what you're hearing about the vaccine rollout in BC? Uh, we're, we're very disappointed, Jill. Um, the, the, the amount of effort that we've made in the, in the past month to communicate with government on the need for priority vaccination for people with developmental disabilities uh, seems to have gone to waste. Uh, there was uh, there wasn't one mention of Down syndrome or developmental disabilities in the hour-long press conference today, uh, and that's uh, that's disheartening. And and I should have really started with that for you to explain uh, for people that maybe haven't heard of your group before your focus and on uh, some of the evidence and the fact that you would like to see people with developmental uh, disabilities put much higher up on the list. Absolutely. So there's a. Uh, there's a significant, I think, misunderstanding in government or willfulness, perhaps, uh, to not understand that uh, people with developmental disabilities are at high risk of both catching COVID and, and suffering bad consequences. So uh, a group of parents, I'm, I'm a parent, I'm not a, I'm not a clinician. Uh, I have a, my wife and I have a son, um, Aaron, who is 17 years old. He has Down syndrome. Uh, he is prone to uh, respiratory issues. Uh, he's had a, you know, he's had a past heart condition, uh, and he's been hospitalized uh, multiple times with pneumonia. And so, COVID is very significant uh, to those of us with loved ones um, that have that, you know, that sort of risk profile. Um, and then, you know, we hear uh, late last year that study was done in the UK where, uh, speaking of Down syndrome. Um, People with Down syndrome suffered four times the rate of hospitalization as the general population. And get this, Jill, people with Down syndrome uh, died at a rate 10 times uh, higher than the general population. And so with that information in that context, uh, the government, and they're not alone, most of the the countries are saying, uh, in that context, uh, they decided not to prioritize people with Down syndrome and other developmental disabilities. And it's really disheartening. 
I'm looking down the list, and again, there was a lot of information that was released earlier. Uh, when you go down the list of the backgrounder, which is several pages long from this morning's news conference, uh, one of the when it goes down to immunization for clinically extremely vulnerable individuals, it says British Columbians aged 69 to 16 with the following conditions will be eligible for earlier immunization in phase three as uh, as they are deemed clinically extremely vulnerable. But you then have to go down the list quite a ways, almost, well, it's four from the bottom, uh, where it says adults with very significant developmental disabilities that increase risk, and then in brackets it says details to come. Uh, That doesn't seem like it's giving you or your group or, or anybody with your concerns a lot of answers. Right. Let me read you 14 words from the Northwest Territories policy. Residents 18 years and older with disabilities, intellectual or physical, and their caregivers. Those 14 words from Northwest Territories mean that every resident of that territory is eligible for vaccination. There's no age categorization for people. There's no extremely vulnerable, right? Right. There's no very severe. It's crystal clear in 14 words. BC, and again, it's not just BC, all the other provinces as of right now have the same wordy, unclear Unclear to citizens, it might mean something to, you know, a physician in public health, I, I don't know. I'm just a dad. It's not clear that my son, or more importantly, more important than my son, that older people with Down syndrome, those in their 40s and older, uh, it's not clear that they will be prioritized. There's way, way too much uh, wiggle room in those words. And we were hopeful, uh, perhaps naively, that they would adopt language such as the Northwest Territories has adopted. Because, and, and not that it should be based on the number of people, but I'm guessing if the argument was, well, uh, this is such a complicated right. process, if we, if we suddenly add this large group, then this group's going to want in. But, right. And I don't have the numbers, maybe you do. I, I, we can't be talking about a huge group of right. people at this point. So the Down Syndrome Resources Foundation estimates that there are between 3,000 and 3,500 people uh, in BC living with Down Syndrome. Of those, many live in what the government terms congregate care, I'm doing the air quotes, because that's a a great bureaucratic word, doesn't mean a lot to most of us, but uh, many of those uh, with Down syndrome live in congregate care and are covered, uh, as they're seniors, apparently. Uh, But uh, for the most part, those 3,000 are are not covered, but still maybe looking at 2,000. Of note, they're expecting 2.6 million doses by the end of June. So... The ask isn't great. The, uh, the positive political payoff, if they were to support these vulnerable people, would be high. And I, I, can't, I can't understand why they haven't taken that, made that easy decision and done the prioritization as we've requested. Have you heard anything, any response from B.C. government, from health officials to your requests and your concerns? We have. We said, wait for this announcement, basically. So we've been in touch with our MLA, Katrina Chen, and she's done what she can do. Um, it, it's been a long process. Uh, our Ready for My Shot uh, campaign was launched after a month of attempting to communicate with the government. Um, at that point, we decided to, uh, as I said, create a parent-led group. Uh, readyformyshot.ca is uh, our website. We have a strong Twitter pre- presence, a Facebook page, and we're connecting with people across Canada. This isn't just a BC issue. We know that other provinces are making the same, in our view, uh, bad choices here. Um, they are not following best practice. They are not following the lead of New York City. They're not following the lead of the state of Minnesota. They're not following the lead of Scotland. 
uh, by prioritizing people with uh, developmental disabilities high on their list. For some reason, Canadian provinces, outside of well, all Canadian provinces, only the Yukon and the Northwest Territories have made this prioritization. All other provinces are choosing to uh, ignore uh, the request, ignore the science, uh, ignore the, the studies that are coming out that suggest that uh, especially older people with Down syndrome and other developmental disabilities are more prone. I'll, I'll share one other little bit of information with you. A 40-year-old with Down syndrome has the health frailty of someone in their 70s or 80s. Right. And yet a 40 year old with Down syndrome would be prioritized after me, a healthy 50 something. That's not acceptable. That doesn't make any sense at all that someone who has the frailty of an 80 year old is going to get vaccinated after me. My son will get vaccinated long after me. He's, he's basically at the bottom of the list. He turns 18 in, in this month, later this month. He'll be lucky to get a shot in the summer. Right. Unless, I mean, do you have any any hope that with that one line in the, in the release that adults with, and again, it's it seems like it's open to interpretation, significant developmental disabilities that right. increase the risk, details to come. Do you have any hope that that could lead to, to somebody like your son getting bumped up the list? Oh, it could. Lots of things could happen, Joe. Right. right? <laughs> I think I think the more disappointing thing, and the Down Syndrome Resources Foundation have, have made this point very clear, uh, look at the age group 40 plus. These people are at high risk. They're in complete isolation right now. Our um, spokesmodel for the campaign is a man named Gary. Gary is 64 years old. A 64-year-old man with Down syndrome is almost unheard of. Uh, the uh, life expectancy for people with Down syndrome today is around 60. Uh, you know, when Gary was born, it was much less. He's yeah, and he has a fascinating story of institutionalized care, his sister breaking him out of that institution uh, and living a, living a really, good, uh, really good life before COVID. Uh, Gary has almost no chance if, if he catches COVID, almost none. And yet Gary is not on the prioritization right now because he lives independently and he's not a senior. Like the, the, the number of holes in this policy that could be addressed by adopting the Northwest Territory's uh, 14 words it's astonishing. And, and, it, and I, you know, I don't want to think poorly of people, um, but I can't think of a reason. I mean, we could get into, you know, there's a, there's a term dysphobia. There's, a, there's a, certainly discrimination that happens with people with dis, against people with disabilities that's widely documented and, and experienced every day in my son's life. Uh, we get into all that. But this is public health policy. And so I'm, I'm really at a loss, Jill. I don't, I don't know why. And we'll right. keep pressing. We'll keep pressing. All right. Well, we'll have you back on the show, uh, I'm sure, to talk more about this. We're right out of time right now. But Mike Waddingham, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thanks so much. Well, a lot of information released earlier today as BC moves into phase two of the COVID-19 immunization plan. We have seen that the vaccines we have here in BC are safe and they provide a very high level of real-world protection with the initial dose. And some of that data was presented last week from the BC CDC, which showed that the protection that we're getting after a single dose, once your body's immune system responds to that, so at about three weeks, is about 90%, even in long-term care homes, our most frail elderly. This is an amazing news. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking earlier today. Let's bring back Dr. Horacio Bach, adjunct professor at the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Thanks so much for being with us again. Hello, thank you for having me. 
Well, we wanted to talk to you because so much was released earlier today, but I think a couple of the things people uh, are uh, really focusing on is something Dr. Henry was talking about there, that the protection is so good with the, the vaccine that BC has decided to extend that period in between doses, meaning everybody who wants one could likely have one by July in this province. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, the, uh, what's happened is that uh, there is a um, new, um, new report that was uh, provided by BCCDC that they got some paperwork sent by uh, Pfizer to the FDA, and they found out that between the first and the second dose, basically one week before you get the second dose, your level of the protection is a little about 90.3, of protection. So when you add the second dose after you know three or four weeks, depending on Moderna or Pfizer, your level of protection is going to 92. So the difference is minimal. This information we didn't know before. So that's the point that today saying, okay, if you get one vaccine, we can wait because we show already that there is a protection. And then you get after four months what they was claimed today. So you, you still have a level of protection that will, uh, of course, uh, protect you against uh, the virus. And do we know that now as well? Because that was one of the big questions when the vaccine first came out and people were told or we were told that the, the timing between it was 28 days, 42 days max. And now saying it's four months. Do we know for sure that that 90.3 or 90.5% protection will still be that strong four months down the road? Uh, yeah, you, you, you are right. You know, even myself, we made assumption that, you know, over the 42 days, we don't know where we are. But now the release of the new data is telling you uh, that is nine, at least 90 percent, let's say. And that is based on a, a, a thousand of thousand people that they were recruited in the uh, phase three of the vaccine. So it's not based on, you know, 50 people, 100 people. So we are talking about Pfizer probably it was about 50,000 or 40,000 people they were vaccinated, and they found that indeed there is a protection of 90%. Um, of course, the company will be more than uh, happy to sell more, more uh, doses in a short period of time rather than extend. But um, yeah, it looks like based on the data, it looks like it is protecting at least 90%. Uh, Dr. Henry was asked during the news conference as well, uh, something we talked about on the show on Friday and a lot of people have been asking asking about, and that is the vaccine choice. Uh, Does it make more sense to give people who are in the older age group, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, and to give the AstraZeneca to younger people, knowing that you still have a chance, a better chance of still getting COVID-19, but you won't be hospitalized, it won't be fatal. Uh, She mentioned today that first-line workers, there will be some first-line workers who will be off AstraZeneca, and that would bump them up the list. They can either take that or they can say no and wait for their their age group to come into the vaccine lineup. What do you think about that idea of choice and the difference between the vaccine? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, let's put a a difference between the COVID-19, sorry, the Pfizer and the Moderna versus AstraZeneca. So AstraZeneca mentioned that the protection is about 62%. But we need to understand that from even if it's 62%, you still have people, I mean, the rest, that will be 38%, is still uh, contracting the disease, but not in a severe case. means even if you contract the disease, you're not going to be apparently hospitalized because that came from the result. Since 
the population around the world was vaccinated with this uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, it looks like there is no hospitalization were recorded. And we are talking about a lot of people. So it means that even if you get the AstraZeneca, you are still in a way that, you know, okay, um, if I get the disease, I'm not in such a bad situation. So um, I think it's great. And definitely um, what you mentioned, I think, is the right way. So give a a, a priority to these uh, more vulnerable groups. And those that are not so vulnerable, we know that, you know, young people, for example, or, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, we know that the the level of hospitalization is much, much lower because, as uh, we know, according to the age, you know, older you are, so more probability to get the severe case. Except, of course, all these uh, isolated cases that I don't want to talk about, you know, immune suppressed, that's different, but in the, in the general population. So that will be very smart to leave this uh, AstraZeneca vaccine to this population. They are, uh, let's say, healthy. Okay. So you are protected. Yeah. All right. I, I asked people to email their questions uh, if they had questions. I won't be able to get to all of them. Uh, but one question, and I've heard this from a few people. What happens if it's your turn to get the vaccine and you're not feeling well? You have a cold. Uh, maybe you don't have COVID-19, but you're, you're not feeling well. Well, I think that if you don't feel well, uh, that will be asked, you know, when you are going to get the vaccine because should be a nurse or uh, someone that will inject the vaccine, and you have to fill a questionnaire that I will ask you, do you have a, uh, a, um, allergies? It's the same as the flu, the flu vaccine. And then if you feel that you are, a, you are a sick, so better wait because your turn, once you are coming to the eligible group, even if it's after that, you will be vaccinated at any time. So it's better to wait because when you have a cold, your body's already under an immune uh, 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 system protection or trying to develop a, or make you feel better or, you know, get rid of the infection. So always it's better to wait and not to go when you have any a fever or any type of infection. Your immune system needs to be in, in the background to react very fast. Otherwise, you are overloading your system with the cold you have, let's say it's a viral uh, infection plus the vaccine. So it's a let's say, a mess in the body. So better wait and just, you know, you can go later. It's not, you are not going to lose your turn. Right. I think Dr. Henry mentioned this in the news conference today, saying it was about three weeks. But this listener is asking, when you get the vaccine, how long before you can feel like you're protected or not in, in going to infect others? Well, what is known is about three weeks. That is the time that was measured, is measured also. Uh, again, I want to repeat what was mentioned all the time by Dr. Henry and all the public health, that you are vaccinated doesn't mean that you don't need to continue to respect or um, use your mask, keep the two meters and gathering and so on that we know, because it means that you may be vaccinated, but you still can't transmit the virus. So. Until we don't get a very high level of uh, protection in all the population, and then, of course, we will follow what the public health is, uh, is uh, reporting, uh, we should continue with these guidelines. So, um, yeah, so vaccination doesn't mean that you are, uh, I mean, you are protected, but you want to protect also those people around you as well. All right. I just want to ask you one more question that came in. It seems quite specific, but going by the list of of people that are in the more vulnerable populations, uh, the list that was put out today, uh, it did 
does talk about people with cancer who are undergoing chemotherapy, uh, radiotherapy. Uh, this listener has has written in saying, uh, I'm, I have cardiomyopathy, a rare form of incurable leukemia, which affects B cells, uh, saying that they're not concerned so much over the urgency for the vaccine. Uh, but the question, in, does it, question is, does it make sense to give a B cell dependent vaccine to someone like me who has malignant and defective B cells? Well, uh, you know, uh, we cannot give exactly what uh, <laughs> should be done because we, we don't know the history, but uh, right. uh, that needs to be uh, basically uh, assessed by your uh, physician or more uh, uh, related to your oncologist or someone that is uh, uh, related to your disease because definitely they will know more the guidelines. But uh, all this stuff needs to be taken into consideration because, of course, this person is vulnerable no matter what. You know, an infection can be very bad. And then, uh, yeah, so that needs to be evaluated, basically. Unfortunately, I cannot say yes or not because uh, we don't have down the history, so we cannot work on that. That's okay. Yeah, I was a bit wary on going into that level of specific medical uh, advice on the radio. Uh, Bottom bottom line, do you think, is is this promising as far as I know that message was repeated over and over that you still need to mask and distance and this isn't isn't, uh, going to change things overnight, but it does give us that hope that it's that we're now looking at weeks and months. Yeah, you know, I think that will be until uh, we get the percentage, uh, as I said, uh, uh, the population is vaccinated, and that will be based on BCCDC uh, reports in the near future. Anyway, I don't think that this pandemic will go, you know, what they mentioned, you know, in three, four months, the virus is gone. It's not true. Uh, We will have still variants circulating that may be resistant to the vaccine, not to the vaccine, means resistant to the antibodies that we produce as a result of the vaccination. So we don't know yet. I just read today that in the UK, they have already the Brazilian variant, and that was registered the first case of death there. And even people are vaccinated. So we have to be very careful how we deal with that. Again, it's not only for your family or your friends, it's also for the rest of the people. If you transmit to someone else in the past, you know, this person is it's just a chain. You know, it's, it's continuous, nothing it, it can stop that. But we need to be aware of the guidance and, and use, you know, sanitize your hands. We, we, we have to make sure that if you compare the last month, we are in the flat line about 400 to 500 cases for a long time. And that is based on people that they are respecting the guidelines. So we have to continue with that, no matter what. All right, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for joining us. You are very welcome. Have a great day. Well, as you know, we got some more information earlier today as BC is moving to phase two of the COVID-19 immunization plan, where we are talking about protecting seniors, learning some of the dates where people can start phoning in to book their vaccine appointment. And I get it. I've been getting a lot of email from people saying, I'll believe it when I see it. It's great news, but people, rightfully so, looking at what's happened in some other provinces and some other places, are now fearful they're going to be stuck in huge wait time lines on the phone to get through to talk to somebody about making the vaccine appointment. Uh, Could happen, yes, but hopefully, hopefully we won't see those huge glitches. Of course, we're talking about a province where when the campsite website goes live, it crashes. Hopefully that's not going to happen with vaccinations. What about vaccinating people, though, that are in more vulnerable settings? Guy Felicella is joining us on the line now, peer clinical advisor with the Overdose Emergency Response Center and BC Center on Substance Abuse. So great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. 
Hey, Jill, thanks for having me. Well, we wanted to talk to you. You sent out a tweet yesterday saying that you led a team of nurses, the goal to getting the vaccine out to people who need, need it the most. So what were you actually doing? You know, well, it was an amazing team effort by um, everybody from Vancouver Coastal Health. It was just, a, a, you know, a bunch of teams deployed uh, into the downtown east side to um, work and then, be, we, you know, innovate as well. Um, a lot of the times, too, we, we had our standalone sites, but, um, you know, seeing that, uh, you know, some people couldn't make it to those sites. So we started uh, deploying outreach teams into the community to uh, make sure that anybody that uh, um, was at risk uh, in, in, and a resident in that area was going to have access to um, getting the vaccine. So we were doing it, you know, uh, in some circumstances, uh, right on the street if we had to, um, and targeting SROs, um, buildings throughout the downtown. He said it was uh, a huge team uh, approach and, and a huge win for, for the community and, uh, and the people that, uh, that live there. Wow. So, so were you actually vaccinating people or you were letting them know this is where you need to go or this is how you can get a vaccine? Well, I, I, I led um, a team of nurses from uh, other sites, so they were the ones doing the vaccinations. Really what I was, I kind of just, you know, used my, um, I guess my hustle skills uh, from being in the downtown east side for decades. I used that to, uh, you know, and, and uh, like I said, I have a lot of friends in that community. And so um, it was easy to uh, see people um, and explain to them. And a lot of people asked me, did you get the vaccine? And I told them yes. And they said, okay, well then I'll get it. So it, it made people a lot more comfortable to, to access the vaccine as well. So people might hear this though and think, well, wait a minute, how come one community gets, somebody walks up to them, a nurse walks up to them and says, hey, I've got vaccine. Here you go. Uh, you can get your dose now where other people have to jump through so many hoops. Can you talk a bit about the vulnerability or why it's important to get vaccine to this particular group? Well, come on. I mean, look at the, the health conditions, homelessness, poverty, uh, underlying health conditions that people struggle with in the downtown east side, uh, substance use, uh, addiction. I mean, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, lack of uh, lack of housing. Um, it, it's just, uh, you know, one one thing, one level after another and one layer after layer. Um, and then on top of that. Um, you know, COVID, uh, you know, they, we really needed to get the vaccine to as many people as we could um, because there have been some clusters uh, in the downtown east side. And so that's why it was a targeted response to those communities, uh, to that community specifically. And um, yeah, it was, it, it was uh, very successful. And how about records, though, like record keeping? Were the nurses doing that or, or how do you kind of keep some some system so we know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't? Yeah, so there's a there's a database that um, when you vaccinate somebody, you have a, a card that fills out all their information. And then, too, sometimes, uh, you, you know, we also uh, I had the ability to um, sometimes uh, there was a couple people that weren't in the book, but they'd been vaccinated um, and they were able to receive their second dose. Uh, what I did is I just called in and uh, we looked them up and yep, they fit the criteria. So it was perfect. And uh, it was, you know, no, no real glitches. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, like I said, uh, a lot of the times too, in the SROs in the downtown east side, there's lack of air um, moving through the, 
um, through the buildings. And so, you know, it's just a cold, could be a COVID nightmare. So uh, we just wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, we were there for, for that community. And do you know what kind, which type, which one of the vaccines they were getting? Pfizer. The Pfizer vaccine. Yeah. Did that matter to people? Not that it really matters, but there's been so much discussion over the, the three different vaccines that have been approved in Canada and people kind of leaning one way or the other. Did you get the impression that people cared which one they were getting? No, I think, you know, um, uh, people were just happy uh, that we were there to give it to them. I just, uh, it was, uh, you know, for people were were um, very excited to see us uh, there as well. And then also to, I mean, Jill, we, we really... You know, when you're deploying outreach teams into the community to access people, I, I mean, there's so many people that, uh, you know, that were like, oh, I can't I can't make it to uh, we posted up. Uh, I went and uh, walked into Van Du and asked Van Du if we could use their their facility to to use uh, to inject for the vaccine. And they were like, oh, yeah, come on in. And then there was people that couldn't, you know, I started going out onto the street and asking people and letting them know that we're at Vandu. I mean, we were just posting up wherever we could. And then some people that couldn't make it into the facility physically, I was like, you just stay here. We'll be back. I went and grabbed a nurse and we went back and, and gave them the vaccine right on the corner, <laughs> took all the information down. So it's just a just a huge, huge approach to a community that uh, that really needed. And a lot of the people, uh, too, were just very thankful and saying, you know, you guys right to come right right to us so um, a lot of the times people have different challenges in making it into uh, the facilities um, so this is just one way and one approach that we uh, used and it, it worked out really well uh, any idea how many people got the vaccine i don't but i, I know uh i know a lot of people uh, a lot of people did i don't know the, the numbers or i you know you're just dealing with uh you know i have i have one goal um, really to try to make sure that uh, people would have access to it. And I didn't, you know, think about uh, counting. You're so laser focused on, you know, trying to help people and um, help them any way you can. And, and, and that's what uh, that was, was my focus on. I guess uh, the data people that could collect that data would know, but uh, that's just not something that I would I would know. Sure. I even just thought just anecdotally, because because you were there, if you were if we were talking about dozens or hundreds or just trying to get a, b- a better idea on how big uh, this was. Well, I think it was pretty big. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, we did it. We started I started handing out flyers to the SROs on the Monday and then we just went all week Tuesday to Sunday. Um, and uh, so I know uh, the buildings that I was in, there was there was. There was people lined up and, you know, excited and we just targeted floor by floor and, and, and people were just very, very, very excited that we, we showed up at their buildings because a lot of the times, too, some of the SROs knew uh, and then some of them didn't, but we just uh, showed up. But everybody was just, uh, you know, obliging and, and, and very courteous to, to have us in there. And like I said, some of those buildings are so run down and so tiny. I mean, we're talking like four of us, four nurses in a tiny hallway mm-hmm. um, trying to, you, you know, help people. I mean, that's where you just have to start being innovative, uh, you know, stairwells, laundry rooms, wherever, wherever we could, wherever we could work. I mean, and, and tremendous props to the nurses too. I mean, they were just working under uh, huge stress conditions and just, you know, just delivered. Yeah. Uh, any other plans? Will this be happening again? Or was this uh, the, the five days or however many days that, that you were doing this? 
I I believe this is uh, just the beginning. So um, I think uh, I think we'll be back at it uh, again. Uh, um, I was uh, asked uh, today that uh, they might need me once a week, and I said, "Yeah, you can count on me down there." So um, I'm I'm sure that it will be up and running again. And do you have any concerns? And I hate I know this sounds extremely cynical, but if people hear about this, like you said, you kind of just double check to make sure somebody met the criteria because there's been such a wait and such a, a, a this waiting for this vaccine. Are you concerned at all that people are going to hear about this and try and get in one of those lines or try and jump the queue and get their vaccine here? I mean, I think we have uh, we have the right people that uh you know, that are doing the, the, the carding and, and, and talking to people. So if you don't meet the criteria and you do come from Burnaby or from wherever, you'll, you'll probably be most likely turned away. So don't even bother. I mean, it's, uh, you know, don't jump the queue over somebody that's, um, um, you know, that's really sick and, 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 and could die if they got COVID. So, um, you know, just, just remember that, uh, you know, we all have a part to play in it. So, well, Guy, thanks for joining us to talk more about this. I appreciate it. Oh, anytime, Jill. Thanks for reaching out. Well, you have probably noticed if you've been spending more time outside, especially during the pandemic, if you're on bike lanes or on the seawall, you've probably seen more e-bikes, electric powered bikes, whether they're the bikes that kind of look like mountain bikes and they've got the battery packs. So we've also seen, or at least I've noticed, a big increase in those electric scooters, uh, people using those in bike lanes on sidewalks. And recently, there was a BC Court of Appeal decision that has to do with a certain type of e-bike. And this is the kind that looks more like a small version of a motorcycle. A man was given a ticket in Surrey because he was riding one of these e-bikes with without a license, didn't have a license, didn't have insurance. He argued that he didn't need a license and couldn't get insurance under ICBC insurance because he was riding his uh, riding his electric bike because he wanted a bicycle. He got it for a cost-efficient way to get around. He doesn't have a driver's license and thought this would be a good solution to all of that. Well, the Supreme Court in BC didn't agree. Neither did the three judges on the appeal court panel. They upheld the earlier court decision saying, no, this is not really a bicycle. This is something that needs a license. But it does raise the bigger question because we're seeing more of these bikes in bike lanes. Where are the rules? What are the rules and do things need to change a little bit? Well, joining me to talk more about this is Jeff Lee, Vice President of Hub Cycling. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's good to be here, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, from what you've heard about this case and the ruling that these these are not, they are not, the, the primary mode of making these bikes move is not pedaling, therefore they don't fall under uh, the umbrella of an e-bike? I think these are really what we'd call an electric scooter. Um, they're not, not like a stand-up scooter, but like an Italian motor scooter sort of look. And, and the pedals on them were really put there to, to sort of get around the rules. They're, they're not useful, and I think the judge judge's ruling was very uh, was very logical on that, that uh, these are not electric assist bikes. And when we talk about electric bikes, we have to distinguish between electric assist bikes, which is what an e-bike is in, in BC, and electric power devices, which may or may not have pedals, but in this case, they could only be used one at a time. It was either an electric motorcycle or there were pedals, but there was no form of, of using them together. So 
it took a long time for this decision to come down, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Have you been seeing more of these types of, of vehicles or these types of electric vehicles in bike lanes? We do we do get regular reports of them in, in bike lanes, and, and the, the issues uh, usually relate to um, them being driven too quickly. Um, they're more of a problem on multi-use paths and bike lanes that are congested, and uh, um, they scare they people because they're, they're going fast and they're larger and heavier. So we do get regular reports about it. Um, I don't know that I've seen more of them uh, than in the past, but uh, certainly this court case has brought some attention back to the issue. And what about the other types of assisted cycles, bicycles, the, the actual e-bikes where you do pedal a bit and then you can also have the electric assist? What are the rules around those? So if it is an electric assist, which means that there's no electric propulsion unless you're already pedaling. So if you're pedaling your, your electric assist bike and you switch it on, it will help you. It will make you easier to climb hills and you can go farther and you may be able to go faster into a, up a hill or so on. But those ones, those e-assist bikes are legal in bike lanes other than in parks. So those aren't permitted in, in, in Vancouver parks um, for those of us in Vancouver. But uh, they are permitted in bike lanes and they are permitted on the road. There are bicycles that look like a bicycle, which are not actually e-assist. And those ones tend to have a a throttle, often a twist grip, like a motorcycle. And and you can usually tell them because you'll see them going quite quickly and the person on them is not pedaling at all. They're simply riding them. So it's not really, it doesn't come down to the look of whether it looks like a scooter or it looks like a bicycle. It comes down to the issue of, is this an assist or is someone using this as an electric vehicle, whether or not it has pedals? And, And that's really the distinction. So with this court ruling, and like you said, it's been a long time coming to get us to this point at the BC Court of Appeal. Uh, Do you think this ruling, will it help clarify things as far as what is a bike, what isn't a bike, and what can can be used on what path and and where these, these types of bikes are okay? It's still a bit of a confused situation out there because um, the law hasn't changed in years. The electric assist or, or motor-assisted bicycle uh, cycle rule has been around for years, but people have been challenging it, and a large number of these devices, both the ones that look like scooters and ones that look like a bicycle but with a, with a hand throttle, have been sold. So there's a large installed base out there, and in many cases people have bought them believing that they're a bike. And so the the situation we have now is we don't have a clear direction. Are these going to be grandfathered in some way? Um, are they going? Is the is the law going to be enforced? Um, are there going to be some spaces set aside for them? And, and we don't know any of that. The problem with them is that they're not a bicycle or they're not an e-bike according to the the BC uh, Motor Vehicle Act, and they don't actually qualify as a motor vehicle because. To sell a motor vehicle and to get a license and do all those things and operate a license and insurance and plates and all the rest, you actually have to meet the motor vehicle code. And these vehicles don't have things that are, they often don't have things like turn signals and license plate lights and brake lights and so on. So they're in a gray zone. They're, they're not a bicycle. They're not a motor vehicle. People own them. They're out there. And it's a question of, well, what's going to happen now? So I, I hope that, that some, some, um, some, some better understanding comes of it. But I, I think the best thing that people, you know, to, to, if they're thinking about getting an e-bike uh, at the moment, I, I think the best thing that they can do is look for one that is an electric assist, and then you know you're going to be okay with it. You can use it in a lot of places. Right. And so in that scenario, as you said, you'd be okay to use it on a bike lane, but not in a park? 
If the Vancouver Park Board doesn't allow assisted bikes on, on paths, you can certainly go on a road in a park. Right. So on Stanley Park Road, you could go, but you cannot use it on the seawall. And the problem is on using much of the seawall in Vancouver um, is a very popular route, the Seaside Greenway, but it goes through multiple parks. So, you know, the problem is if you go around False Creek, you, you go through one park after another, and you, and you can't actually ride a, an assisted bike in a park, according to the uh, Vancouver Park Board. So... Perhaps they'll get that changed because if they get some better clarity around what is an e-bike, they, the park board uh, leadership may be more comfortable in permitting slow-speed assisted bikes for those who, who are, are just out for a bike ride and who are not out racing down a, a path uh, um, potentially causing problems. Because exactly, and I see people with e-bikes on the seawall all the time, and, and it's a question of do people not know that you're not supposed to do that, or there are just there are so many of them now, and people think, oh, it's a bike lane, and this is a, a bike lane beside the pedestrian lane, it must be okay. All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think we have people who know that they're not allowed to be there. I think we have people who don't know they're not allowed to be there. I think we have very limited enforcement of it. Uh, the park rule is really comes down to enforcement by park rangers. So you'll, you'll see some enforcement around that in Stanley Park, but you won't see it in, in throughout much of the city. And, and I have to say that if, if someone is using a, a low-speed uh, assisted bike um, responsibly and, and not terrif- terrifying the neighbors sort of thing, I, I, I don't think that many people are likely to complain about it. I, I think the problem comes down is that um, we have people who are consider these a cheap motorcycle and they, you know it's a substitute for a vehicle they're just trying to get somewhere and and uh, I think that uh, that's when we see see the conflict uh, so do you think that there needs to be an updating of the rules or maybe even a clarification so people know exactly what the rules are and and what's allowed and what's not I think that the Motor Vehicle Act needs better clarification. Um, the, the Motor Vehicle Act would be the starting point, and it defines what a motor-assisted cycle is. All these rulings have done is uphold the, the definition inside the Motor Vehicle Act, but because it's not as precise as, as we'd like, um, I think some people and, and perhaps some sellers of these uh, e-bikes have taken advantage of it and claimed that they are bicycles and claimed that it's okay to use them, and, sure, and that's, that's where really some of the, the problem is. So a dealer association could be involved in the education campaign, the Motor Vehicle Vehicle Act could be updated. And in fact, you know, although we look to the, the BC government for the Motor Vehicle Act changes, it's actually BC Parks, uh, another uh, provincial organi- or government organization that has done some really good work in clarifying what, it, what an e-bike is. And they've adopted language in the BC Parks rules around a Class 1 e-bike, which is no throttle, and it's what we call a pedal assist, a Class 2 e-bike, which is has a throttle, and it's possible to move it without without pedaling, and Class 3, which is a higher-speed device. And that, that language is being used uh, throughout North America now for Class 1, 2, and 3 e-bikes. We're at Hubber encouraging the, uh, the uh, Ministry of Transportation Infrastructure and, and, and groups within the B.C. government to adopt that language beyond simply parks, where the rules have been made very clear for what you can use on, on parks, trails, in B.C. parks. But we'd like to see that same language used in the BC Motor Vehicle Act and, and just help people to understand that there are devices that are totally legal, that are a good way of getting out there and, 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 and getting some exercise, and they're, they're low cost. And they're, there's a huge, as you've seen, there's a huge growth in, these, in the use of these devices. But um, I think it would help to do some communication around what an e-bike is and what an e-bike isn't. All right, Jeff, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Okay, you take care. Well, how to stay connected with friends and others in our lives while still trying to keep our distance as we are being encouraged to do. 
Good question. Probably one you've asked yourself at some point during the past year. Canada Post appears to have come up with at least a bit of a solution. And joining me with more details on that is our show contributor, John Jang. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Some people call it snail mail, while others still appreciate the personal touch of an actual letter or a postcard that you receive in the mailbox. And soon, every single Canadian household will be receiving a free prepaid postcard that you can address to anyone else living in Canada without paying for postage. For more on this, we're now joined by Sylvie Lapointe. She is a spokesperson for Canada Post. Sylvie, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Thank you for having me. We love to talk about this postcard campaign, so it's an opportunity for us to tell Canadians what's happening. Now, I love hearing about this new program and the fact that every Canadian household is going to get one of these postcards. I mean, that's a big operation. That's a lot of postcards going out. So explain to us what these postcards are originally meant for and how many different designs will actually be available. Okay, great. Uh, well, we have about, uh, well, every address, as you can imagine, it's 13.5 million postcards that we're starting to uh, to deliver to households uh, starting this week, actually. So it's, we have six different uh, versions of the postcards, so you will get one in the mail. They are a reaching out match um, of love to someone that you've been missing. I mean, who hasn't missed someone in the last year? or, uh, you know, gatherings and, and the celebrations and birthdays and weddings and even funerals. So we've all missed people and occasions to gather. So now this is sort of a reaching out uh, to someone you love uh, with a message of love and a personal handwriting message on a postcard. We have heard from experts over the past year that the pandemic is not only dangerous for your physical health, of course, but it's impacting our mental health as well. So I look at this program as a small way of maybe getting in touch and reconnecting with a family member or a friend that you haven't had the chance to see in person for a while. Not only will it make you feel pretty good about being able to write down your thoughts and feelings, but of course the person receiving the postcard also gets a nice break from the bills and the flyers that are usually hanging around the mailbox. I know, like it's been really, really hard on everyone and uh, it's been going on for a year. It's hard to believe, but uh, this is hopefully bringing some smiles to people when you see it in your mailbox. Think about someone that you want to reach out to. I know in my family, we're voting on who's going to get the postcard, <laughs> who are we going to mail it to, because we have so many people that uh, that we care about and miss and didn't get to see at Christmas and other occasions. So. Uh, think about someone that you love that uh, you want to reach out to and anywhere in Canada you can mail the postcard to any street leather box or at your community mailbox and uh, or the post office and it will reach someone in Canada um, free of cost. So you will receive it uh, in the mail. They are pretty colorful. They're blue or purple or yellow or green. They have a little message of love in the front and then in the back you just write down the address of the person and your um, your message. From my understanding, these postcards are part of a new program, a bigger program launched by Canada Post in September of last year called Right Here, Right Now. Could you explain what Right Here, Right Now is actually about? Well, we've noticed during the pandemic that people wanted to send personal letters and cards and greeting cards. And as we approach Christmas, we certainly notice more Christmas cards going through our operations. So we do have a section on our website to uh, help people uh, reconnect on uh, sending actual handwriting notes and letters and uh, and some tips. So the campaign is on our website. 
We also do a social campaign with these postcards where, you know, if you, when you write your postcard or when you mail it, take a spot and send it on social media. It'll bring smiles to everyone. And certainly for us at Canada Post, you can put the hashtag right here, right now, which is W-R-I-T-E, right here, right now. And uh, and then we'll see your, your message of going through our, um, our social media. And so we look forward to that as well. And again, that hashtag is right here, right now, spelt W-R-I-T-E. One thing I also know about Canada Post is that uh, people like to collect stationery, whether it's stamps or other unique items. Is it possible that somebody could find a way to collect all six of the different designs for these postcards? Well, we hope to see them back in our operations. So everyone gets one. So it's uh, it's a limited uh Certainly gesture, if you get one in the mail, you know you're a few select one that uh, that can actually receive one and keep one. But the idea is really to send them back into the upper our operations and to deliver them to someone that you, you care about. So we're hoping to see them back in our operations uh, starting as soon as you get one. Think about someone and then write your note and uh, send it back and we'll deliver that uh, happily to someone that you care about. My suggestion is send back the original but maybe keep a photo of the postcard design. Maybe it'll be worth keeping around as a memento that way. Now, Sylvie, you mentioned this at the beginning, but this program will actually launch this week. So people listening right now should anticipate those postcards will arrive in their mailbox pretty soon. Yes, very soon. And just watch for it so that you can see it and not miss it. And then uh, it's pretty easy. You'll see the information inside and you just detach the top part, which is the postcard, and, uh, and put it back in the mail. We look forward to seeing them. Our letter carriers certainly just uh, will enjoy delivering them as well. We've been uh, providing an essential service all year long, and uh, this is like a message of love, and uh, we'll put a smile on uh, on Canadians, I hope. It's been wonderful to see the kind of support that Canadians have been showing to our letter carriers with Canada Post. I've heard of people celebrating their work with applause as part of the 7 o'clock cheer that we saw, or even playing live music when they're in the neighborhood. So... No doubt they're going to be busy over the next few weeks delivering all of these postcards to the 13.5 million homes across the country. But rain or shine, as we know, the mail must be delivered. Uh, she is Sylvie Lapointe, spokesperson for Canada Post. Thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Thank you. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.